You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. So yeah, in the interest of um, having a shortened service today, I'm just going to go right into my right into my talk that I've prepared. Uh, and I want to cover, as Bob said earlier, the um, something I probably should have covered last month during Pride Month. Um, but you know, every month can be Pride Month. <laughs> and so I want to talk about the so-called six clobber passages, as they're known in the Bible. And they're called the six clobber passages because they've been used time and time again to essentially clobber LGBTQ people over the head with for like ever. Um, and I've never actually done a talk on this before, which surprises me because it's right up our alley. And I thought this is something I need to understand better myself. And so I wanted to study it. Um, and I, of course, I've heard about it for years and I've, I've heard different takes on the clobber passages, but I've never really dove into them. And I'm sure some of you feel the same way because <clears throat> that it's worth looking into more because, you know, we get into discussions and maybe debates with people in our circles of friends and family about what the Bible says and doesn't say about such matters, you know, same-sex relations, those kinds of things. And so my hope today is that you come away with a clear understanding of these texts and how to diffuse or unclobber them, so to speak, so you can have better dialogues and <clears throat> conversations with family and friends, and maybe, just maybe, change some minds, but that's a tall order, right? So the six clobber passages are Genesis 19, Leviticus 18 and chapter 20, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1. Time will not permit us to do a really <clears throat> deep exegesis of each text. Um, I'm just going to do my best today to give you the most concise take on each one of these. And if you're interested in doing a deeper, deeper dive, I'd recommend really anything by Kathy Baldock, uh, Matthew Vines, Colby Martin, and others. Um, have done a really good job of creating publications, online resources, and YouTube videos about these texts that you can easily find <clears throat> online. Okay, the first passage we're going to look at is Genesis 19, which of course is the infamous story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is probably the first passage that people jump to when they think of an anti-gay Bible passage. Um, as the story goes, God sends two angels to the Twin Cities, of Sodom and Gomorrah to see how wicked they are, to, to, to see how awful they really are and to possibly destroy them uh, for their wickedness. Now, according to Ezekiel 16, 49, the sin of Sodom was that, and I'm quoting, she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Notice no mention of same-sex behavior here. Rather, the reason why these two angels were sent to these two cities was, again, according to Ezekiel, that these, these cities were arrogant, overfed, aka wealthy, and did not help the poor and needy. As the story goes, the two angels were welcomed into Lot's house to stay the night. This, of course, was Abraham's nephew and supposedly the only righteous man in town. And being righteous, he, of course, welcomes these strangers into his house. Hospitality is a key, is a key thing to understand in this story. <clears throat> However, soon thereafter, some of the male vil villagers 
came and pounded on Lot's door, demanding that he send the two men out so they could gang rape them. Lot, of course, refuses and offers the mob his own daughter uh, instead, a real classy move by the so-called righteous Lot, right? <clears throat> the so-called righteous man, the only righteous man in town. But again, the sin of Sodom was not homosexuality, as many claim, but rather the general decadence of, and, of, of the city, their greed, their violent nature, and their lack of care for the vulnerable and the poor, particularly their, their lack of hospitality for strangers, which was a really big deal in the ancient Near East. Hospitality for strangers was considered basic decency back then, and anybody who didn't exhibit it was seen as truly depraved or corrupt. Again, this was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, not rampant gayness. And to be clear, the fact that a mob of men wanted to rape these two male visitors should not be seen as really having anything to do with being gay or even sex per se. This was about power and violence in a city well known for, for violence and for abusing the vulnerable. So that's how you unclobber Genesis 19. The next two clobber passages can be taken together because they're basically reiterations of each other. Leviticus chapter 18, Leviticus 18.22 to, to be exact, and Leviticus 20.13 both say this. You shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination, end quote. Now, the first thing to understand is that the Hebrew word for abomination, tovah, did not mean vile, disgusting, or subhuman. Tova had to do with violating cultural boundaries and not evil actions that are universally and timelessly morally wrong, like, say, murder. For example, the same word tova was used to describe eating shellfish or pork or charging interest on loans or having sex with your wife while she's on her period. All of these things were described as abominations in Leviticus. And yet no Christian today, I would suspect, you'd be hard pressed to find a Christian today who would think that those things are somehow abominations before God or, or antithetical to the nature of God. Another important point about this text is that it doesn't prohibit lesbian relationships or female same-sex behavior. It only speaks of men, which is interesting. This is because in a deeply patriarchal society like ancient Israel, it didn't really matter what women did if it didn't affect men. It didn't really matter what women, women did with each other if it didn't affect men. In fact, from an ancient point of view, it was impossible for women to have sex with each other because they didn't have the right genitalia. A man had to be present. Was, this was the thinking. A man had to be present for it to truly be sex, right? Um, obviously, this reveals a very primitive and incorrect understanding of human sexuality, but that was the way people thought 2,500, 3,000 years ago. It's also important to keep in mind that Leviticus was written specifically to Jews entering the promised land. That's the context of this book. It was not written to Israel's Gentile, Gentile neighbors as a way of telling them what God expected of them too. This is a classic Christian misreading of the Torah, this thinking that it applies to all people everywhere for all of time, just like the rest of the Bible. I think even conservative scholars today would agree that the author of Leviticus or authors of Leviticus did not intend Gentiles to read it 
or, or to think that God wanted them to follow these customs and traditions and laws. In fact, if anything, the point of Leviticus was to, was to use these customs, traditions, and laws as a way of separating and distinguishing Israel apart from their Gentile neighbors. As a, you know, this was the reason for it. It was not a way of converting their Gentile neighbors or, or making them like Israel. The, the Israelites certainly believed that God would judge the nations, uh, but not by the law of Moses per se. They believed that if their, if their neighbors were just and good, then God was pleased with them. They didn't think God would condemn, would condemn them for eating shellfish or pork or, or charging interest on loans or having sex with their menstruating wife, or for that matter, even having same-sex relations. So again, Leviticus was not written as a law code for Gentiles. It was written for Israel and Israel alone. The fact that this is completely ignored, completely ignored by evangelicals who claim to have a you know, high view of scripture is really ironic. You know, you cannot claim to have a high view of scripture and yet ignore things like authorial intent and historical context. It doesn't work that way. Okay, so the next passage we're going to look at is Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, which says this. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural in the same way, also, the men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error, end quote. Paul, like many people in the ancient world, believed that same-sex sex or same-sex behavior was not driven by sexual orientation, a sexual orientation you were born with, um, this, this was something it appears they had little or no conception of, but rather they believe same-sex behavior was the result of too much heterosexual lust, okay? In other words, the belief was that if you were too lusty in general, if you had an excess of sexual desire, an excess of libido, you would eventually lose interest in your, in just heterosexual sex, um, but you would get into same-sex behavior too. And this is what made it sinful in Paul's eyes. It was driven by pure lust, as he says here at the beginning of this passage. For this reason, God gave them up to, to degrading passions. The problem was their passions. In the same way, drunkenness was labeled a sin, not because drinking itself was sinful, but because drunkenness, of course, was, was, was a kind of excess. And that which is born out of excess and, and a lack of self-control was by definition sin in Paul's eyes. So this was the root of, uh, of same-sex behavior for, for Paul and many others at that time. We, of course, know now that that's not what makes people gay. Nevertheless, Paul does label same-sex behavior as unnatural in this text. But when you consider that, you know, he also says in another place that for men to have long hair is unnatural and therefore sinful, you know, you have to see it kind of in that context. You know, you'd be hard pressed, I think, to find an evangelical today who believes that if a Christian or if a man has long hair, that he can't be a Christian and he is utterly doomed to eternal torment or something, you know, for long hair, right? Well, what does all this mean? It means that it's impossible to divorce Paul's view of same-sex behavior from his first century context and the deeper patriarchal social and sexual biases of that day and time. So when, when Christians today, you know, read Romans 1 
and use it against LGBTQ folks, they are unknowingly just importing first century social customs and primitive understandings of human sexuality into the modern world and holding countless people hostage with it. You know, this is, it, it's not just regressive and anachronistic, but it's actually kind of barbaric. You know, it's akin to reviving medieval medicinal practices like bloodletting and, and, and leeching uh, and, and, you know, performing surgical operations with anesthesia. It's, it's shockingly ignorant and cruel. This, uh, the last two clobber passages are very similar to each other in that they're both just lists of sins that keep you out of the kingdom of God. The first passage is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do you not know that all wrongdoers will inherit the kingdom of God? Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. End quote. And then 1 Timothy 1, 1 9 through 10 says this For the lawless and disobedient, for the godless and sinful, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their father or mother, for murderers, fornicators, sodomites, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is con contrary to sound teaching, end quote. Now, <clears throat> it is in these two passages that the English word homosexual first appears in the Bible, and that didn't actually happen until 1946. And some of our friends, uh, Rocky, uh, if you remember Rocky, she and Kathy Baldock and, uh, and some others are working on a, on a documentary film called 1946 to talk about this. That word homosexual was did not appear in the Bible until 1946 when translators of the Revised Standard Version, one of the most popular and influential Bible versions or Bible translations ever, translated the Greek words in these texts, malakoi and arsenikontai, they translated these words into homosexual. The, the translators actually later admitted that they made an error here, but the damage was done. Um, now, in the Revised Standard Version, the new Revised Standard Version uh, that I am reading from today, these words are translated into male prostitute and sodomite. But if you go to the New International Version or you go to the New American Standard, you'll find the word homosexual still. The question, of course, is what does Malakoi and Arsenikontai actually mean in their original context? That's the $20,000 question. And you can really get into the exegesis of that and the deeper uh, etymology of it all. There's lots of stuff online about it, good stuff. Um, and, and I'll give you the basic gist. It's key to understand that when, those, when these texts were written, meaning the first Corinthians and the first Timothy text, um, same-sex behavior was really limited to two places in society, temple prostitution and pederasty. So let's talk about temple prostitution first. Male and female prostitutes were common in pagan temples and were used as a kind of sex magic or uh, worship of, of whatever deity it was present. One can quickly see why Paul would have a problem with that and how it had little to do with same-sex behavior and was more about idolatry. And then the other place where you would find same-sex behavior in the first century world was in the widespread and socially acceptable practice of pederasty in the Greco-Roman world. In that context, it was common for wealthy adult men 
in heterosexual marriages, no less, it was common for, for such men to have young male consorts. Such relationships were often exploitative and even a form of sex slavery, as the boys were not really seen as free agents or consensual partners of equal social standing. They were essentially property and status symbols for wealthy adult men, wealthy, powerful and adult men. It's, it's easy to understand why Paul might condemn such exploitative and abusive practices. In fact, in the first Timothy text, he actually lists slave trading as one of the sins that keeps you out of the kingdom of God. So once again, here we see that Paul is not talking about committed, consensual, loving same-sex relationships like we see today. Those didn't really exist back then. Um, he was mostly condemning or really condemning adultery, I'm sorry, idolatry, pederasty, and what amounts to rape. To translate those two words in, in those two texts, Malakoi and Arsenikontai into homosexual, and thereby, in, in, and thereby infer that any and all same-sex behavior is sinful, does not actually respect the meaning of those two words in their original context. And moreover, it encourages intolerance and has perpetuated uh, a great social injustice against LGBTQ people today. So that's basically how to unclobber those, all the, those, those two passages, passages in particular in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. But that includes our look today at these six clobber passages. I, I know that was probably like drinking from a fire hydrant. I hope it didn't overwhelm you too much with information. Um, and I want to, of course, open it up for any comments or questions about all of that. Hey, Aaron, I have a question. Yeah. When the translators came out and said, hey, we made a mistake here, how many, like how, when was that? Like when was the, when was the switch yeah. recognized? My understanding in 19, uh, 1971, um, they changed the, the new revised standard uh, translators, I'm sorry, the revised standard translators in 1971 owned the 1946 mistake and mm -hmm. changed, changed those, the word, uh, Malakoy and Arsenikontai translation from homosexual to just, I think, sexual perverts. I think they changed it to just sexual perverts in that translation. It's so complicated because there's so many different Bible translations in the English in the Anglophone world that, you know, again, the, the NIV today and the, and the New American Standard, you go read that translation today and you will still find homosexual. Yeah. But the Revised Standard Version circa 1970 made the adjustment and they changed it to sexual mm. perverts. So that answers your, kind of answers your question. It's so complicated. Other, other questions or, or remarks about this? Do you find these passages, I'm sorry, do you find these arguments convincing or not, helpful or not? Definitely. You do find, uh, Anthony, is that you? Yeah. Sorry, I don't have my Zoom screen up here. Why do you find them helpful? I'm, I'd like other people to hear your reasoning too, if you don't mind. I just always thought it kind of made it very plain. I remember like the first time I discussed it, like at a gay Bible study, just going through them 
each kind of like you did it just just really just just laid it out verbatim like what was this about and it makes sense for yourself and for your friends and people that you want to like care for and if other people don't really get it then you just leave it with them yeah I do think that these arguments are really only persuasive to people, to conservative Christians kind of on the fence of these issues and wanting to find a reason to be tolerant or affirming. For those that are just hardcore, like, you know, biblical inerrantists and people that are just anti-gay, you know, in the evangelical world, I I don't think these arguments are persuasive at all. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, then the same way that, you know, someone that hates in and out isn't going to really want to listen to your <laughs> argument about in and out. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I feel like, um, maybe not persuasive, like in the way that you would normally think about it, but potentially it's like a drip, right? And a drip of yeah. water that like continues will erode no matter what it is. And so like, it might not be persuasive. We might not talk about this with one person, but we might have like started a little drip, and we don't know how long it'll take to make any difference. If it'll ever make any difference, but at least, at least it's dripping. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with Desiree in to say it in a very kind of uh, churchy way. It's planting the seeds, perhaps. Yeah, it might not grow right away, but if they then eventually they might think back on it after having a very pleasant interaction with a gay person that they know and then you know definitely a drip yeah yeah i think it's also helpful like i think about my kind of journey from being more conservative to where i am now it is not the same as many people in this churches um in that i I came from a theologically conservative tradition, um, but I came from pretty socially progressive area and context. So I already had friends who were gay, even when I would have said, I think that's probably not God's plan, but I didn't have any vested interest in it really. So for somebody like me, seeing some of those arguments was really helpful to be like, oh, there's other ways to look at these passages. And so I think it can be really helpful in that context too, for people who just haven't really thought much about it or haven't had to be confronted by it personally yet. Um, I also know they were super, super important for me at a time when I held the Bible to be more inerrant. And they were like really helpful in that. Like now I can also look And, you know, and I'm more comfortable saying, you know, I think Paul was just wrong about this issue. I think we've learned a lot more and I think we have a a bigger context and understanding and it doesn't threaten my faith to say that the biblical writers made mistakes because they're human like all of us. But there was a very long time when I would never have tolerated that at all. So I think it's, it's a helpful bridge for people who can't, who can't get to a place to going, the Bible is wrong. It's a way of letting you hold your faith and still coming into a more, a less damaging and less oppressive faith for other people, I guess. Yeah, I I think it's for people specifically who want to maintain a really high view of scripture 
and still be affirming. I think that's important to clarify. Because for me, I'll be honest, I don't need these arguments to affirm the humanity or the right to exist for LGBTQ people. I don't need a perfect Bible to do that, but some people do. And to be frank, I think there's kind of a problem there a little bit for you know, the Kathy Baldocks and the Matthew Vines who do great work that I absolutely support. But I think there's something a little problematic here because if, if, if you work really hard to get the Bible to validate queer people's humanity and right to exist, I think in some ways you're actually inadvertently uh, tying their worth and right to exist to this book. And I think there's something inherently a little demeaning about that. It, I, their worth, their humanity, their right to exist is not contingent upon what any book says or what somebody wrote thousands of years ago. I'm afraid that the exact opposite is inferred when so many well-meaning Christians work really hard to show that the Bible is really affirming, you know, in a way we need to stop giving the Bible that much power over people. Uh, we need to stop inferring that the Bible is somehow uh, that people's worth and right to exist is somehow contingent upon this book when it's not. Um, I think, I think, I think that's a little disempowering. Do you guys agree with that? I've never thought about it that way. I thought that was brilliant. It was such a good way to put it because I have, I have honestly, that has never crossed my mind. Um, so I appreciate that you put it that way. Thank you. Yeah, it's interesting. This always kind of reminds me of the discussions about the kind of uh, Protestant reformation in general and kind of the push of like sola scripture and the Bible being the most important. And it's, you know, so it's very, it's not just in America, but it's very present in American Christianity that the Bible is the only thing that matters. It, it is God, essentially, like we give it so much power, which is, it's easy for us to forget yeah. that for the most majority of the church's history, the Bible was just one component of, of what faith was and that experience and tradition were equal equally important in how you understood God and had a relationship with the church. So I don't know, it's, it's almost like we're in this like place where it was always going to be that way because of how much emphasis we put on scripture. And I understand why that happened. And I, historically, I think it was important, but it's, you know, the pendulum always swings too far. Yeah. Yeah. Other thoughts today, remarks? We can always talk more about this over some, uh, some pulled pork and uh, boozy, boozy beverages at the brunch. Uh, everyone's welcome to come over and have uh, some boozy brunch beverages. A lot of alliteration there, I like it. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks for being here otherwise and look forward to seeing y'all real soon. I want to finish a little early so folks have time to come on over and get ready and that kind of thing. But see you soon, everybody. Good to see y'all. Later.